There is joy and children and whatever else you said. Something. All that's there in the house of the Lord today. We're grateful. We're grateful for some things that our church is doing. Like, for instance, yesterday there was a wonderful clothing exchange that took place here at the building. I don't know how many people came down. A couple of hundred, three hundred. I don't know what it was. We had a gymnasium filled with clothes stacked on the tables. And uh, a line out the door at 8.30 waiting for people to come, uh, waiting for the doors to be opened at 9 so they could come in and take clothing. And it was absolutely wonderful. I stayed for quite a while through all of that until everybody was pretty much gone. And then uh, I'm sure June and Richie did a lot of cleaning up even after I was gone. So thank you to June and Richie for a job well done again. One thing I can tell you is that um, we probably could use some more volunteers for the actual day. Like everybody did a fantastic job of bringing clothes down. That was fantastic. And we had lots of clothes. We had some uh, that we still had at the end of the day. But we probably could have used some more volunteers just to be here and especially to kind of clean up at the end. So if, if you're able to do that next time, don't be afraid to volunteer because we definitely could use some help. Uh, but June Ritchie and those who helped, they did a great job. Also, last Sunday afternoon, Dustin and Rochelle were married. They're now husband and wife. They're on their honeymoon. They're coming back, I think, Monday night or Tuesday sometime. He's supposed to be back in the office, I think, on Wednesday. So uh, we're grateful to God that he's brought them together and they have shared the blessing of being married together. So we praise the Lord for that. And then I wanted to mention thank you very much to all of you who sent to me uh, your study of John 17. You sent emails to me that said, hey, I read John 17. Here's the things I got out of it, which is what I asked you to do last week. So thank you very much for doing that. I appreciate it. It was great to see those. If you haven't done that yet and you still would like to, John 17 is still there waiting to be read. So don't be afraid to read John 17 this week. Talk about, you know, write down some things about what you got out of it, what you saw, what was important to you, some things the Lord showed you. If you want to send me an email, my email's, of course, on the back of the bulletin, and I would love to hear what you had to, uh, what you got out of John 17. It's a great passage of Scripture. In fact, I would say that John 17 has lots of elements within it that fit very well with what we're doing this morning, because we're talking today about the mission and ministry of the church, especially in light of praying about our mission and our ministry. And in that prayer, Jesus specifically prays for those who come after him, both the apostles and then those who learn about him from the apostles, and he prays for them. He prays that they might be protected through his name. He prays that they might be glorified and receive his glory, that he himself would be glorified through them. He prays for their unity. Uh, he, he just prays for their effectiveness in the world. He talks about how their unity and love is going to display something of Jesus to the world and the world will come to Christ because of that unity. So there's lots in John 17 that really discusses what we're focusing on today in terms of praying for and praying about the mission and ministry of the church. And it's exciting that Jesus himself was willing to pray specifically about those who would come after him and their ministry. Many times you have probably heard something like this. You can fill in these blanks. Are you tired enough of blank to blank? You know, are, are you tired enough of Donald Trump that you could spit, okay, or whatever? Maybe you love Trump, maybe you don't like to spit, I don't know. But there's all kinds of things that we could get tired of, and it tends to hopefully lead to some kind of behavior change in us. Something in life where we say, I've had it, this is going to change. Now, sometimes this comes in the form of television commercials, and you know these, you've heard these, like, are you tired? 
Are you tired of your whites not being white? Of your colors not being vibrant? Then try Tide or whatever. Okay, something like that. Are you tired of those stubborn stains not coming out? Then try whatever you might try. Are you tired of those circles under your eyes? Have I got a face cream for you that's going to take those circles away? Are you tired of that muffin top roll that hangs just above the top of your pants? The key is my miracle drink or your membership in my gym. Are you tired of the noise your car makes? Come to me for new brakes or a new muffler. And we could go on. Are you tired of the weeds in your lawn, the eggs that stick in your pan, the cold car seats in the winter, an oven that won't clean, the ring around your bathtub, the grease on your dishes, the marks on your floor, the knock in your engine, your nose running off your face because of allergies? Or are you just tired of the kids in your family that talk back to you? There are lots of things of which we get tired. The question is, is anything going to change? And usually with the TV commercial, they tell you exactly what it is that you can do to have things change. Well, all of these questions have something in common. And that is, are you sick and tired enough of what you're experiencing that you're willing to try something new? Are you willing to spend money even? Which is usually, usually the way the commercial goes. Are you willing to spend money on something in order to change your circumstances? Well, I think that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. I'm going to take a perspective on prayer this morning that's going to ask the question, is there something of which we're tired that we would love to see changed? I want to read a couple of excerpts from a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala. Years ago, Cimbala went, we, some of us know his story, he went to Brooklyn in New York, went to a broken down little church, and when I say church, I mean church building, I mean it really was broken down. The furnace didn't work, the holes, there were holes in the walls, the pews were broken down, it was a disaster. Uh, they'd had a, a pastor, a preacher who had just been there for a short while, and he just said, forget it, I can't do anything here, and he left. And he said to Jim Cimbala, tell your, tell your father-in-law that I've had it, his father-in-law was a leader in the church, he said, tell your father-in-law I'm done. So the father-in-law and others said to Jim Cimbala, you need to be the one to start working for us and doing something. And Cimbala was like, what in the world am I going to do? And he just couldn't think of anything that was really going to turn this tired little church around. And so he and his wife to begin with and then others began to pray. And the church there where he was serving, that church began to see some changes take place. Like when they had absolutely no money to fix the furnace, all of a sudden the amount they needed showed up and they were able to fix the furnace. There were people who would come to them and they had no resources to help these people, but they were able to help them. There were people who would come with, with drug addictions especially. And there were lots of prostitutes in the area. And they thought, how in the world are we ever going to really help these people? But God provided ways because they continued to pray. And the thing began to mushroom and grow. Today, there are thousands of people that worship together at the Brooklyn Tabernacle where Jim Cimbala pastored. His wife started a, a choir in the area that just grew phenomenally. There were hundreds of people in this choir and they would have people lined up literally out the doors to try and get in and be part of the worship services uh, at this place. 
And here's what Symbolist says, and I think this is, these are, these are words I think worth thinking about. He says, prayer is the source of the Christian life, a, a Christian's lifeline. Otherwise, it's like having a baby in your arms and dressing her up so cute, but she's not breathing. Never mind the frilly clothes. Stabilize the child's vital signs. It does no good to talk to someone in a comatose state. That's why the great emphasis on teaching in today's churches is producing such limited results. Teaching is good only where there's life to be channeled. If the listeners are in a spiritual coma, what we're telling them may be fine and orthodox, but unfortunately, spiritual life cannot be taught. Pastors and churches have, have to get uncomfortable enough to say, and these words are interesting, speaking to this church. He says, pastors need to say this to their churches. We are not New Testament Christians if we don't have a prayer life. This conviction makes us squirm a little, but how else will there be a breakthrough with God unless we pray? If we truly think about what Acts 2.42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, we can see that prayer is almost a proof of a God's normalcy. Calling on the name of the Lord is the fourth great hallmark in the list. If my church or your church isn't praying, we shouldn't be boasting in our orthodoxy or our Sunday morning attendance figures. And I think he's right. If a church doesn't have at the center of its life together prayer, then there have to be great questions about how much that church is acting as serving in the role of the New Testament church. Here's another quote from the same book. I photocopied this. It was a little bit easier to read it this way. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of prayer. Only when we are full of the spirit do we feel the need for God everywhere we turn. We can be driving a car and spontaneously our spirit starts going up to God with needs and petitions and intercessions right there in the middle of traffic. If our churches don't pray, and if people don't have an appetite for God, what does it matter how many are attending the services? How would that impress God? Can you imagine the angels saying to one another, Oh, they're pews. We can't believe how beautiful they are. Now this is significant because we have brand new chairs. We can't believe how beautiful they are. Up here in heaven, we've been talking about them for quite some time. Oh, and your sanctuary lighting, it's so clever. The way you have the steps coming right up to the pulpit, it's so wonderful. Well, we have brand new sanctuary lighting. This hits us right between the eyes. And Symbolist says, I don't think that's what the angels are saying. If we don't want to experience God's closeness here on earth, why would we want to go to heaven anyway? He's the center of everything there. If we don't enjoy being in his presence here and now, then heaven would not be heaven for us. Why would he send anyone there who doesn't long for him passionately here on earth? I'm not suggesting that we're justified by works of prayer or any other acts of devotion. I'm not a legalist. But let us not dodge the issue of what heaven will be like. Enjoying the presence of God, taking time to love him, listening to him, and giving him praise. I've talked with pastor after pastor, some of them prominent and successful, who've told me privately, listen to this, Jim, the truth is, I couldn't have a real prayer meeting in my church. I'd be embarrassed at the smallness of the crowd. 
Unless somebody's teaching or singing or doing some kind of presentation, people just won't come. I can only get them there for a one-hour service and that only once a week. It'd be interesting to think, what if we have something and we had no Lord's Supper? Like on a Sunday morning. I think there'd be some some of us who wouldn't come. What if we were just going to get together and just pray? I think there would be some of us who wouldn't come. Is that the kind of religion found anywhere in the Bible? Jesus himself can't draw a crowd even among his own people. What a tragedy that the quality of ministry is too often measured by numbers and building size rather than by true spirituality. And he means by that prayer. Well, I think that's significant. Symbola, I think, is talking here about something that we need to pay attention to. Asking the question about whether or not we as a church, if we don't pray as we should, can really be what God wants us to be as a church. And the experience that they had makes me wonder if somehow that experience can transfer to us. And it's not a method. It's not a new program. It's not a new plan. It's simply prayer. And asking the question of whether or not God might want to do something through prayer in our church family. Let me ask you this question. Would we like to see the presence of God's kingdom vibrantly active in our community? Transforming the lives of people around us. What do you think, church? Would we like to see that? Like seriously, would you like to see that? I would. I would love to see God do something just exactly like this. I would love for his kingdom to come in such a significant way that lives are being transformed everywhere. That would be wonderful. And I think I have an answer for that this morning. But it's not a product, it's not a gimmick, it's not asking you to buy anything, it's no quick fix, there's no pill that I can give you. What I want to offer to you is a promise. And the promise doesn't come from me. The promise comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has specifically to do, I think, with prayer, and we need to pay attention to that. Look at this promise. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now you tell me, church, where does that passage come from? Where is that found? Matthew 28. Right at the end of Matthew 28, after Jesus has just said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I want you to teach them. I want you to make disciples. I want you to baptize them. And I am going to be with you. He says, because Jesus wants to be with us. He wants to do things among us. He doesn't want to leave us alone. And so he's right here, he says, at the very end of the age, or, or till the very end of the age. Jesus says, I'm not going to go until I leave, and when I, or I should say, I'm not going to go until I send my spirit. When I send my spirit, my spirit's going to come and live within you, and you will not be alone. And he asks us, he exhorts us 
to pray specifically that the Spirit might come and do things among us. How is it that the kingdom of God is going to come and do something vibrant among us, transforming the lives of people? Well, I really think, I believe, that it comes because of prayer. When a church says, I'm, we're going to pray. We're going to devote ourselves to this. And then God comes. And he does something. So I don't know all the things that need to happen so that we can experience something different than what we've experienced as a church family. But I know one thing. I know that when Christians begin to pray to God and ask him to bless them, that he is with them, that he is there, and that he wants to answer those prayers and do something vibrant and wonderful among them. I want you to look at this passage, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. I think it's on page 770. In the Pew Bibles, I should say. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And the context is that Jesus has just left. He leaves the apostles all by themselves, so it would seem. And he asks them to stay around Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's going to come. I'm going to send my helper. But I want you to stay there. And so I want you to see what the people do in response to Jesus saying that. He names the apostles in verses 12 and 13. And then he says in verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And that is not a throwaway line. The fact that they, in losing Jesus, decided to immediately begin praying tells me that they were very confident that God was going to answer those prayers. Something was going to happen because these people decided that they were going to pray. And then what, what comes after this? Like, of course, Acts chapter 2 does. But in response, direct response to the church constantly praying, God in Acts chapter 2 sends his Holy Spirit upon these people in a significant, powerful presentation of his presence. And I just want to know, if it's, isn't it possible that if our church was to pray, and I mean constantly pray, if we devoted ourselves to prayer, isn't it possible that God would decide to do something again? Something powerful? Something wonderful? So that God would come and change things like we can't imagine they could be changed. All because God's people decided to do what Jesus specifically told us to do, and that was to pray. It makes sense to me then that we would indeed pray. And the early church saw this not just in Acts 1.14, but the early church saw again and again God blessing them because they decided to pray. And so I showed this list to my Bible class a few weeks ago. What happens when the church relies on prayer? You'll notice Acts 1.14 is at the head of the list. But right after that is Acts 2.42, this passage we've already mentioned where they devoted themselves to prayer. 
They devoted themselves to prayer. And because they devoted themselves to prayer, God comes and he does something. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles are arrested. They have to appear before the Sanhedrin. They're finally released. And they go back with the church and they begin to pray. And it says at the end of this passage that the whole place where they were praying was shaken. The building shook. The foundations moved. And it was all because the Spirit was answering the prayers of the church. In Acts 6, the apostles want someone to go and serve. And they specifically, it says, appoint other people to serve so that they can spend their time in prayer so that God will come and bless the church. In Acts 10, it's the story of Cornelius and his conversion. It says that he was a man devoted to prayer. And so God uses Cornelius as the first Gentile convert to do something powerful and wonderful. Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 12, is when Peter is in prison. And the church begins to pray in verse 5. At the very end of the story, of course, Peter's released from prison because of their prayers, and he goes and he knocks on the door. And is it Rhoda? Goes to the door, she answers the door, she looks, and it's Peter. And she shrieks and she slams the door in his face and runs back and says, Peter's at the door, and they don't believe her. Because they didn't really think God was going to answer their prayers. But he did. And then Acts 13 is that wonderful passage where Paul and Barnabas are appointed as missionaries to go into the world. The first missionaries. And it specifically says that the church prayed for God to bless them with these missionaries. And he does. And through the Holy Spirit sends them out. Well, this is just, it's a, a constant experience of the early church where the church prays and God comes and he does something wonderful. And I just want to ask, is it not possible that we could do the same thing and that God would lead us and bless us as he did them? Now, it's, just, it's not just the early church that talks this way or that acts this way. It's Jesus himself. And so I want you to pay attention to this. You know this. Where does this come from, somebody? From the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6. What is it? Luke chapter... Thank you. Jesus is asked about prayer by the apostles and he's going to teach them how to pray. And so he says to them, this is how I want you to pray. Father, Hallowed be your name. And he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a prayer. And this is God's people praying that God would come and he would do something among them. And so Jesus is exhorting us, encouraging us, teaching us to pray exactly like he prayed. Now, some churches will recite this prayer on Sunday morning. We typically don't. We could. Churches often do. And so many of you learned the Lord's Prayer in some kind of church context. Maybe you learned it in school if you're old enough. Some of you are thinking, man, he thinks I'm old. I did learn it in school. Well, I did too. So some of us are that old. But you probably learned that prayer in some kind of church context where the church recites that prayer. But it's very clear to me that Jesus was not in t 
intending for us simply to recite it. It could be that there's something powerful that happens when we recite it. The ancient world sometimes would recite things verbatim because something powerful could happen when they were simply recited. But I don't think that Jesus just wants us to recite this prayer. He's not asking us to quote him. What Jesus wants us to do is to ask him. God, bring your kingdom. Let your will be done on the earth. That's what Jesus wants to happen. And so we need to pray a prayer like this. We need to pray for God to come and work in the church in such a way that his kingdom comes. That his will for humankind is fulfilled. That lives are transformed in response to the kind of prayers that we pray. Jesus isn't just asking us to quote him. He wants us to ask him for this. And we need to. Look at this passage. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And we've talked about this passage many times. It's a, it's a great passage that tells us what Jesus was doing and tells us the kind of things, therefore, that we should be doing. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That's Jesus talking about what he wants us to pray for. And when he says that, he's not talking about pray that we might have lots of missionaries that we send all over the world. I mean... We do want to pray for that too. But I don't think that's the real intention here. I don't think that Jesus is saying, pray that we might have lots of full-time workers who are supported financially by the church, like Kelly is or Jonathan is. We do want to have that happen, but I don't think that's the real focus of the ministry or the prayer of Jesus here. What Jesus wants us to be praying about is that all of us become workers for him in a field that requires all of us. And so Jesus is asking his disciples to pray for the transformation of the hearts and the lives of every Christian. He wants us to recognize the call on each of us to be ministers, to be ministering and serving and carrying out the mission. And he asks specifically that we would pray for exactly that. And so I don't know if you pray for this but I want to encourage you to do so. Pray that your brothers and sisters might be gifted and blessed by the Holy Spirit in order to do all the things that God wants them to do. I pray you pray that kind of prayer. And then I want you to look at Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. It's one thing for us to say that we're going to pray this. It's one thing for us to talk about the need for prayer and how important it is. But I want you to notice this from Luke 18, 1. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them. And what is it, church, that the text says he wants to show them? What does it say? 
that they should always pray and not give up. And so he tells the story who comes before the, about the woman who comes before the judge. And she's asking for justice. And he doesn't want to give it to her. He doesn't even want to listen to her. And so she keeps coming and coming and coming. And finally the judge says, that's it. I'm tired of this. I don't want her to keep coming to me. I'm done. And he gives her the justice that she wants. And Jesus makes it clear that he wants us to keep coming and coming and coming and asking and asking and asking. And never, he says, give up. And what is it that we're not going to give up on? I don't think that he's saying, don't give up on praying for your own material success. Don't give up on praying for uh, great looks. Don't, don't give up on praying for your hair to come back. Okay? He's not praying for those kind of things. What is it that Jesus wants us to pray for? And the only thing I can think of is the very things that he prayed for. And so from John 17, all those prayers that Jesus asks that the disciples might do a wonderful job in the world as they're still in it, ministering in his name, and that others would come after him, and they too would do that, and that they would all be unified and love one another and show the world of their love. I would think that Jesus would be praying and saying, don't stop praying for my will to come and for the, or the kingdom to come and my will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus would want that kind of prayer to be on our lips constantly. And so he would say, don't give up praying for the mission and the ministry of the church. And so we are to keep praying, God, please bring your kingdom. Let your will be done. We are to keep praying, Lord, send out your workers. We're to keep praying, let your justice be done on the earth. And then if you'll notice at the very end of this passage, in verse 8, there's a great question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And I don't think he's just saying, will people continue to believe? In this context, I think he's saying, will people pray diligently and have a kind of life that is expectant of me working? And will they continue to believe in that way? And so the question this morning is, is, is that how we believe? Do we believe like this? That when we pray, God is going to answer, and therefore are we going to continue to pray? I'd put it like this. Do we have enough faith that he will answer? That we are willing to pray for the presence of God's kingdom to be vibrantly active in our community, transforming the lives of people around us. Do we have that kind of faith that causes us, drives us to continue to pray? I hope we do. I hope we do. And in fact, here's the thing. It would be absolutely faithless of us if we didn't pray this morning before we leave. Can you imagine me preaching this sermon about how we're all supposed to pray so diligently for God to come and do something among us, to act powerfully, to, for the Spirit to be present among us, for me to say all of this, and for all of us to go, thank you very much, nice sermon, let's go home. 
That would be a mistake. That would be faithless of us. And so what we're going to do before we leave is we're going to pray. And the way we're going to do that is this. I want us to get into groups of six or seven. And I know some of you right now are thinking, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. That's okay. Just get in the group and just sit there. Okay? You can sit in a chair. So I want us to get in groups of six or seven. And I want us to pray. Choose one or two or three or four, whatever you want to choose in your group of people who will pray. And I'm going to tell you exactly what to pray for. There's four things specifically that I want you to pray for this morning. So you can, you can pick four people who are going to pray each for one, or you can pick two people each are going to choose to pray for two, or you've got one person who's going to pray for four. I don't care how you do it. But get in groups of six or seven, and we're going to pray because that's the only faithful thing to do after this. And then Jonathan and the group after that will come and they'll end our prayer time together by just standing and singing. It'll be kind of abrupt because all of a sudden they'll just be singing and your prayer time will end. But God's going to bless that time together. Okay? Groups of six or seven. I know you can count to six or seven. Okay? Except for Elsie, just about everybody out here can get up and go to a chair. And so please do. And I'll tell you what to pray about. If there are people in your group that you don't know, then hallelujah, you get to meet new people too. Okay, the things I want you to pray about are on the screen. Four bullet points. The presence of God's reign, which is really his kingdom, his will to be done. For God to gift people among us with the abilities, opportunities, and the desire to do his work. Just like in the passage that we read. For his spirit to work through our church, through us, to bring the elements of his kingdom into the lives of those in our community who don't know him. And then for God to use our church to transform lives through the gospel of Jesus. Pray about these things and God is going to bless our church's ministry and mission. And in a few minutes, Jonathan will come with a group and lead us in singing. Okay? Pray, please.